0: morning. <clears throat> um, in his classic work, uh, After Virtue, Alasdair McIntyre tells a story in his book, and, uh, and it's a story that he invites the, the reader into. He says, I want you to imagine that you're at a bus stop, and um, somebody comes up to you, random person, you've never seen them before, and they give you the proper Latin name of a wild duck, Hysteronicus, uh, Historonicus, Hysteronicus, And uh, he says, where you put that occurrence in the the scope of a broader story depends on how you respond. And he goes on to say, it's possible that this person is mentally ill. And they came up to you and they said that, um, and they just learned that fact, and they wanted to share it with the first person they saw. He said, it's also possible that you write a story around this, that maybe someone who looked just like you yesterday went up to them and said, hey, would you happen to know? the um, proper Latin name of a wild duck, and so they see that that person is here again, they mistake it as you, and they go up and they tell you the answer to the question that you actually never asked the day before. He gives another uh, possible story that you could write around this. He says, maybe, maybe this is some foreign spy. And uh, this is their code phrase that they need to give to their handler. And they've mistaken their handler for you. And you're actually talking to a foreign spy. And he says, um, it depends on the kind of story that you write around that, how you respond to that very strange occurrence. And he says, if you write the wrong story around that, it's really unfortunate because maybe you think that this person is a spy and you citizen arrest them and the person turns out to be mentally ill. That would be a big mistake. Or maybe you think that this person's mentally ill, and so you carry on a really friendly conversation with them, and you invite them over to your house, only to find out that they're a Russian spy. And the point of the story is, um, we always are putting uh, occurrences in our life into broader stories that we are telling. And as we put things into a broader story, if that story is not correct, or if it's misinformed, then all of a sudden we are responding incorrectly. And I want to assert this morning that if we don't put work into its proper context of a story, then we will respond to work uh, wrongly. If we don't put work into the story of God's creation, fall, and restoration, then we might respond to work in a way that is actually harmful to us. And so what we're going to do this morning, this is the big idea, is how do we put our work into the whole story of God. And if we just put it in one category, if it's just in creation or if it's just in the fall, we might actually respond poorly to it. But if we put work, the thing that we put our hand to, 20, 40, 60 hours a week, if we put work into its proper context, then actually our response can be something really, really beautiful. Now, first, I want to define work for you because I'm going to be saying that word a lot and I don't want to have to define it every time. Work is whatever you put your hand to for that 20, 40, 60 hours a week. So for a lot of people, that might be a job. For a lot of us, that might be parenting. For a lot of us, that could be being a student. So when I say work, I don't want to discount anything like full-time parenting, part-time parenting, being a student. A lot of us are probably some kind of combination of that. But full-time parents, you guys work harder than probably the rest of us. That's work. That's what you're putting your hand to. And so when we talk about work this morning, I wanna make sure that all of us fall into one of those categories, I would assume. Student, parent, some kind of vocation. The other option is um, I have four years of college basketball eligibility left, so I'm training to see what school, what D1 school is gonna pick me up. That's what I'm putting my full-time effort into. And uh, this morning, uh, I'm excited because we're hearing from all kinds of different sources. Number one, we're hearing from some people even in our church. I sent an email earlier this week, and I said, um, hey, whether you're they were both having jobs or parents, I said, if I was going to preach on work this week, which I am, what would you want to hear and what would you not want to hear? So actually, some of this is coming from people in our church. We're going to be in Genesis a lot. We're going to hear the words of Jesus. We're going to hear some of the words of a guy named Tim Keller. And then we're going to hear one self-deprecating story about me. So this morning's going to be awesome. It's going to be so fun. So let's start at the beginning, Genesis 1, where it all began, Genesis 1, and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And so what we see at the very beginning is that God is a worker. When we open up the first chapter of the story of God, God is working. That's what we see him doing at the beginning. And then it says in verse 26 and 27 that we are made in his image. So God is a worker. You are made in his image. That must mean that we are also created to work. And then he says in verse 28 even what our job is. He says to rule over the uh, earth and to subdue it. Now, subdue doesn't mean strip mine or pollute, but it does mean to co air and co-labor with God in creating something beautiful here. And so God is a worker. We are made in his image. Therefore, we can assume that we are made to help co-labor and co-create with him. And we want to put our work into the story of God, God's whole story, creation fall restoration and so today um, we want to ask the question how does my work again you define work how you need to but how does my work and how does my faith mix and here's here's kind of the outline for this morning without faith without taking your faith into your work your work has the ability to kill you it has the ability to kill your soul work has the ability to bore you Or work has the ability to corrupt you. So if you don't carry your faith into your workplace, it has the ability. If you just leave it in the story of only creation or work is just a result of the fall or there is no restoration, work has the ability to kill you, to bore you, or to corrupt you. So number one, without faith, your work has the ability to kill you. And if you're someone that takes notes, I would write this down. Faith gives you an anchor to which you tether your work. Faith gives you an anchor to which you tether your work. And if you do that, your work can never become too elevated in your priority list because it is anchored to Jesus, the rock of your soul. If you tether your faith and your work together, work can never take too high of priority. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. Now, in Hebrew, that root word for work Uh, because Genesis was written in Hebrew, is avodah. Avodah. So it's the root word that we get the word work. There's another word that actually comes from that same root Hebrew word also, and it's the word for worship. So out of this one word, stick with me here, we, we alive? Out of this one word, we get both work and we get worship. And so work is not just something separate in our lives. Work, it seems like, even comes from the very beginning, it comes from a form of worship. It comes from a form of worship, and God said, look, here's what I want you to do, and he gave a sacred vocation. Where are my plant lovers? COVID plant lovers? There's more of you than who just responded. The first sacred vocation was to steward a garden. How about that? God gives a sacred vocation, and he says, this is what it looks like to work with me, This is what it looks like to come join me. I want you to take your work, and I want it to be a form of worship. Now, I love what um, Katie in our church said. She said some form of, you can worship God through your work, but you have to be careful to not worship your work. So, and I love that. Think about this. Work can be a form of worship to God. But if you do remove God out of the mix, all of a sudden, we can find our identity or we can find ourselves worshiping the work. So we can worship God through our work, but we can't remove him from the equation. Otherwise, it becomes too much of our identity. And this is what happens if we put work in the context of just creation. If we don't ever let it move out to fall and restoration, if it's just I'm created to work, I'm created to work, I'm created to work, then we start to make our work, again, however you define that, our identity. And this is important. This might be the most important thing. That some of us here this morning, but you are not your job. You are not your job. If you're a nurse, um, then your identity is a son or daughter of God. If you're a teacher, then your identity is a son or daughter of God. If you're a creative, your identity is a son or daughter of God. If you're in finance though, your identity is a son or daughter of God. Now if you're in ministry like me, your identity is still a son or daughter of God. and if you're a full-time parent, your identity is a son or daughter of God. You are not your work your identity doesn't change depending on what vocation, parenting, studying that you're doing. Your identity is not your work, but your identity is always that you are a son or daughter of God. Oh, come on, guys. I know, I've been gone for a couple of weeks. Remember, we are allowed to talk back, and amen every now and then is okay. You don't have to do it. Um, side note, if you've been around in the church for a while, not just this church, but uh, I grew up in the church, every now and then you'll hear a good... Thought or message on identity, and uh, someone will say, Hey, when people ask you what you do for work, you should just say that. You should say, I'm a full time son or daughter of God. I am, I'm a full time son of God. I love that, in theory. <laughs> if you follow Jesus, let's just be real for a second. You're already a little weird. Okay, but, I mean, seriously, think about this. Let's just be objective. You believe a guy died, came back to life, and now his spirit lives inside of you. You're weird. We don't need to give the world any more reason to think that we're weird. So when somebody asks you what you do, please just say what you do. We don't need, I'm a, I'm a child of God full time. I, you know, I'm, I moonlight as a leader of a church in OTR, but I'm a child, I'm a son of God. We don't need to give the world any more reason to assume that we're just a little crazy. Guys, when it's time to be weird, Christians should be the weirdest of all people, but we don't always have to be weird. Every now and then, I think the most spiritual thing we can do is just be normal, right? Just be normal. Stop, making, stop, make, God, stop giving the world ammo to say that we're just crazy. <laughs> All right, we need some Tim Keller. What does he say? Tim Keller says this. He said, if your work is your identity, then success goes to your head and failure goes to your heart. If work is your identity, then success goes to your head and failure goes to your heart. You are created to do work, but if you leave work in the story of only creation then work has the ability to kill your soul. It has the ability to overtake your identity and make that who you are rather than being in Christ. Number two, um, if you don't bring your faith into your work, faith has the ability to bore you. Faith has the ability to bore you. Faith gives you dignity in whatever work you do. Faith gives you dignity in whatever work you do. And you've probably seen this if you've worked with people or if you've seen parents or students uh, in your classrooms, but people that believe that their work has dignity do work differently. I mean, you can just tell, man, they're working with some kind of something else that's fueling them. It's not just a paycheck. It's not just a degree. It's not just seeing my kids eventually get out of the house. There's something that fuels someone who believes that their work has dignity. Uh, At the time of Jesus... Uh, and even before, Jesus was living in, a, in an era that was um, ruled by the Romans, but before that it was the Greeks. And one of the big Greek thoughts of the day, and you can see this if you read Homer or a lot of the Greek thought leaders of the time, but one of the big thoughts is that in Greek mythology, um, the gods, first of all, the gods hated man. It's, uh, that was just one of the facets of Greek mythology is the gods hated men. And one of the punishments that the gods gave to men was work. And so in Greek thought, um, it was slaves that did work, and it was free men that indulged. Slaves work, free men just indulge. It's, a, it's called duality, where it's, it's either this or it's that. Now, this is 2,000 years ago, but what's so interesting is some of that Greek thought every now and then does creep into our churches and into our faith as well. This is holy. This is not. If you've studied uh, any kind of revival history lately, the, the most recent revival that we've had in America is uh, the Jesus People Movement. It was mostly in the 70s, crazy story, worth looking into, what's so interesting, and this is for a whole other Sunday, but it was some crazy, progressive, drug, uh, drug-addicted hippie and some older conservative pastor that came together that actually sparked this revival. Now that'll preach right there. Those are the two kind of guys that came together and said, for the kingdom of God, we're going to like start praying and seeing people healed and saved. And a revival started with those two people coming together and saying the kingdom is important. And so what happens is revival starts to break out, especially along the West Coast. And, and all kinds of amazing things were happening. Again, this is a revival, so this is good. One of the mistakes, if you study that revival, one of the mistakes that was made in that revival is people were getting so set on fire for the presence of God that they started to think, what are we doing going to work? We should be praying. We should be worshiping. And they started to think, man, Jesus is going to come back at any moment. I don't want to be serving coffee. I don't want to be selling cars. I don't want to be even going to school. We should be praying and we should be worshiping. Now, on the surface, right, that sounds very good. Think about what happened, though, five or ten years later when Jesus still has not come back in the flesh. All of a sudden, all the Christians are out of the workplace, there's no Christian in the workplace. Also, they, didn't, they decided to not disciple the next generation. So the Jesus People Movement, an unbelievable revival, didn't really carry into the next generation because they didn't disciple and because they removed themselves from the workplace. <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> I don't think I covered any of that up. <laughs> Duality had kind of entered into... The Jesus people movement. Now Colossians 3 says this and usually I'm an NIV guy but this is from the message. I want you to maybe even it helps to close your eyes as you listen to this. I want you to listen to Paul's words and what he says to us. Servants, do what you're told by your earthly masters and don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work from the heart for your real master for God. Confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance, keep in mind that always keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. The soul and servant who does shoddy work will be held responsible. And catch this: being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. Martin Luther said it this way: To do Christian work is to do work well. The author William Deal wrote about this, and he said he called this the ministry of competence. The best way to be a Christian this or a Christian that is to do that well. The best way to be a Christian airline pilot is to, to land the plane. <laughs> it's the most spiritual thing that that pilot can do in that moment, land the plane. And so Luther and Paul, William Deal all agree, the best way to do Christian work is to do work well. Can I get a water? I'm so sorry. <coughs> I think I made it louder again. Um, So, what this means, let's actually put this practically. What this means is possibly memorizing the book of Ephesians while you're supposed to be reconciling reports, raising your kids, selling clothes, studying, might not actually be the most spiritual thing you can do. The most spiritual thing you can do is to do your work and to do it well. Thank you. Um, this This is a true story about me, which begs the question, if I don't say it's a true story, have I lied to you guys before, but... Uh, before uh, Catherine and I moved to Vegas and I became a pastor uh, I was in corporate finance and uh, that was what my degree was in it's what I thought I wanted to do and something amazing happened to me before I graduated college I like really really found Jesus and I got set on fire in a way that I've rarely seen um, in my life like I don't know what happened And, uh, and a few things came from that that were really good one I, uh, I got my first job, which meant I was getting my first paycheck. I had rent that was $180 a month. This is 10 years ago. Um, $180 a month, and I was making $52,000 a year. I had all kinds of money. And, uh, and I was convicted right as soon as I was graduating college, so I started to do something called tithing. And I am now 10 years addicted to tithing. Catherine and I tithe plus. It was one of the great things that came out of me finding Jesus right before I started making money. Um, it's changed my life. Another great thing is I became convicted for evangelism, and so I started sharing the gospel with all my coworkers in, like, a really healthy way. Um, I took all of them at some point over the course of my two years there out to lunch and, like, explicitly shared the gospel with them. And, uh, And one of my coworkers came to know Jesus because of that. Now, some other things came from this that were good but a little bit immature, one of which was I bought into this duality. And I thought, this finance stuff is just a waste of my time. I should be doing Jesus work. So I, um, and I remember this, for two years, I would sit at my cubicle and I would listen to four or five sermons a day. I listened to four or five sermons a day for two years. And I ended up going to seminary and getting a degree after this. But I learned more about the Bible in my two years in finance because of the sheer amount of exposure I had to God. And so what I would do, is I was at the end of our cubicle lane, so everyone was over here, and here's my wall, and I had a big screen, and then I had a little screen, and I put the most complicated, colorful, unbelievable spreadsheet you could ever find on this screen, and on this screen, I had one just like it, but below it, I had YouTube, and I'm listening, you know, Matt Chandler's preaching the gospel to me, Francis Chan's saving me all over again, I'm listening to all kinds of people, but if you started to walk this way, a simple click, and there's that spreadsheet, again, again, Four or, five hour, four or five sermons a day for two years, and I would just fake like I was working. And I remember, I'm kind of a Seinfeld fan, and I remember that um, George Costanza says, <clears throat> somebody knows where this is going. George Costanza said, the best way to, to not be asked to do more work is to not look like you're working hard, but to look confused. So this is, this is legitimately what I would do. I'd be sitting here, and, and again, I'm getting the gospel. I'm you know Romans is being exegeted for me, and this is what I look like. And again, somebody's preaching. I'm getting like set on fire. But if you looked at me, this is, yeah, you know, I'm fake clicking the keyboard. That's what I did. That's what I did. Another time, and by another time, I mean both winters that I worked there. I started to realize that. You knew when someone was leaving for good when they would get their jacket because it was cold and that's when someone was leaving. If they weren't getting their jacket, they'd probably go get water, go to the restroom. So here's what I did. True story. I, uh, <clears throat> around 1 o'clock every day, I would go get my jacket and I would go to the front door. Now, I wasn't leaving. Of course, nobody thought I was leaving. It's 1 o'clock. And I'd take my jacket and I'd set it at the front door and I would hide it. I'd go back to my cubicle and at about 4.30, I'd get up and I'd leave. But nobody thought I was leaving because I wasn't carrying my jacket. I'd go to the front door, I'd unhide my jacket, and I would leave at 4.30. Yeah, you don't want to laugh, because you know, I like, that's awful. (laughs) This is, I mean, if I would have put half of my creativity into like actually doing work, I could have made a real difference. And I remember thinking this, I remember thinking work is a result of the fall. And this is why I hate it so much. Maybe I'm just a pre-fall Christian. Maybe I'm just meant to be in the garden. And I remember thinking, this this is why I hate work so much, is because it's a result of the fall, and I had really, really poor theology. Because we know, right, Genesis 3.17 says, cursed is the ground before you, because of you, through painful toil you will eat food from it all of the days of your life. The fall changed the nature of work. The fall didn't introduce work. And I went through, um, especially that first year, thinking, this is unspiritual, this is unholy. And it is one of the great sins of my life that I can't do anything about now. And I've repented to the Lord, repented to Cummins, my employer, uh, at least in thought. And um, they're okay. And, uh, but I can't actually make things better. It is one of the, it is one of the true like, areas of my life that I can't do over. And I so, so regret the way that I treated my work because that was not the most spiritual thing I could have done. The most spiritual thing I could have done, ironically, is shut the sermon off and like, actually figure out the spreadsheet. And if we leave work in the bucket of the fall, this is what work does to you. Work can bore you. It becomes unspiritual. It becomes just something that gets in the way until I can do the real spiritual thing like ministry. And that is not what the Bible says. Martin Luther says your biblical theology should give dignity to all good work. And he says God is providing through work. This is the example he gives. He says God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid, which should encourage all of the milkmaids in our church. (laughs) God is using us to bring peace and restoration to the rest of the world. Uh, One of the maybe the milkmaid version of a job today would be a garbage man or a garbage woman. I want you to think about your quality of life if, a garbage, if garbage men and women didn't come pick up your trash. I want you to think what your life would be like even two weeks in to that. Garbage starts to pile up inside of your house, outside of your house, animals are everywhere because no one's picked it up. There is dignity in all work that is not opposed to God. You can find dignity in all work that is not opposed to God. And if you're a garbage man or garbage woman doing that, you have made all of our lives better, cleaner, and tolerable. There is dignity in almost any job out there as long as it's not opposed to the actual will of God. So number one, work could kill you if you leave it in creation. Work might bore you if you leave it in the fall. Also, if you don't bring restoration, the idea of Jesus coming back and restoring all things, then work could also corrupt you work could corrupt you. Faith gives you a moral compass in a culture of decreasing truth. Faith gives you a moral compass in a culture of decreasing truth. Now, what's unfortunate is the academic areas that prepare a lot of us for work says, "Hey, truth is out, morality is out, there is no right, there is no wrong." And what's unfortunate is then we get to the real world and we find out, "Oh no, morality's still a thing. You do that, you go to jail. You do that, you get fired." You do that, you're uh, probably spending some time in prison. So morality actually isn't out, but sometimes we're taught that it is and it doesn't prepare us to actually engage in work the way that we should. Your faith should instruct the way that we do certain things. Your faith might instruct you to be more transparent with your customers than the other people around you. Your faith might instruct you to not cut corners on the project like everyone else's. Your faith will likely instruct you to not treat your coworkers poorly like maybe the rest of them are, your faith will instruct you to do certain things in a certain way. Jesus said this in John 17. He's praying for his disciples, and he ends up praying for us, and he says this. He says, My prayer is not that you take them, you being the Father, not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, is even as I am not of it. Sanctify, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So Jesus says, No, 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 I I want you. I want you in the mix. Like, I want you, I, I don't want you to look like that, but I want you in it. Jesus could have said, Man, I just, I'd love for you to get away, like, make sure you're not stained by everything. He says, No, I want you in the world, but I do want you to look differently than the rest of the people around you. I want you in the world. But I don't want you of the world. And I'm sending you there just like I've been sent. Jesus was sent here. And he says, Father, just like you sent me, I'm now sending them. Jesus says, I'm now sending you into the world to be on mission for me. I want you to carry your faith into all of the corners and crevices of your world. And here's the thing about actually doing that. Is that following Jesus into those places will inevitably cost you something. Following Jesus is always free, and yet at the same time, following Jesus will cost you everything. And when you go into those places, it might cost you some short-term relational equity. If you're in a workplace or church or wherever, and you start hearing gossip, and you shut it down, that's going to be awkward. That's going to lose you some relational equity. If you're in the workplace, and people are taking more full advantage of the open bar that your job set up, and you decide not to and you shut it down, you say you're not going to partake in that, that's going to cost you some short-term relational equity. If you're around places and they're writing that thing off on their taxes, but you decide not to, that's going to literally cost you something. Our faith should inform the way that we interact with our work, our parenting, and our studying. And if we don't bring work not just into creation, not just into the fall, but also into the triumphant restoration of our thing, all things, then our work has the ability to corrupt us. We want to bring a little bit of triumph into the things that we do 20, 40, 60 hours a week. We want to bring Jesus into those places. Um, To kind of summarize where we're at, this is, I think, what we want to leave with, is that your work, again, you define that how you will, but your work matters, your work matters. Your studying matters. Your parenting matters. What you do every day matters. And when you tomorrow, or maybe later on today, when you log on, you clock in, you show up, I want you to remember that you are reflecting a creative and cultivating God. You are reflecting a God who also has worked and is working. And when we bring our faith into whatever space that we're in, it should give us an anchor, It should give us dignity, and it should give us a compass that guides us through navigating the relational and vocational struggles that we have in work. Um, Now, every week when when I preach, kind of my cycle is I do a bunch of studying, and I try to pull out everything I can from this topic or this passage. It ends up being way too much. It'd be like a 90-minute sermon if I used it all. But uh, I get all of that on like day one. And then on day two, uh, Tuesday, I usually start off by asking the Lord, okay, Lord, I have all of this. What, do, what does City Church need to hear? Because God knows what we need more than even some good studying does. And, um, and what I heard this week, and this is usually the, the main thrust of whatever message I preach, but what I heard this week is I felt like the Lord said work is hard. Work is hard. And, and I felt it in such a way that, like, that's okay. It's okay That work is hard and and here's I just want to say a couple things and this is for all of us but this might more be for maybe the the Gen Z or Millennials among us but um, it's okay to do hard things for a season Um, it's okay that work is hard now if your workplace is toxic oppressive dangerous that's not okay but we want to be very careful to not throw those words around um, unless a person or a place really is it's okay though If for a season, work is hard because the fall did happen, because the world is broken. And every now and then, it's okay for us to do something that is relatively difficult. Um, About a year into my job that I was telling you about, because my first year was really awful, again, I did very little. Um, I felt like the Lord, I'm sorry, I didn't feel like the Lord, I got a job offer. In uh, another area of finance, another company, it was going to be way better. It was like marketing finance, so I was going to be around more people. And I had an hour commute to my first job. This was going to be 15 minutes. It was going to be so much better, especially for, like, a 22-year-old driving an hour each way to work and doing something that I absolutely hated. And I didn't know I was going to hate it until I got there. And so a year in, I got a job offer um, that was going to be better. And it was almost a formality, but I prayed about it. Catherine and I had just gotten married, and... Um, I was like, Lord, you know, I assume you want me to take this, right? And I felt like the Lord said this, and the Lord never speaks to me in pictures, and this is just for me. This is not scripture. This, you can't apply this to your situation. This is what the Lord said to me, but it shows the value of his voice. As I remember, I saw it in, my, in, in the spirit. Um, the Lord said, if you take this job, it's going to be like this. He said, right now, your job is right here. If you take this job, it's going to be this good. And then he said, but if you wait, I'm going to give you something this good. And, and I remember, I mean, I was like as clear as day, I felt like the Lord said, if you wait, there's going to be something better. And I made the really, really hard decision to re-up and to do something I absolutely hated, which turned out to be for a whole other year. And um, it was at the end of that second year of working there that Catherine and I chose to go to Vegas. And um, I started to work for a church and then became a pastor. And now, I mean, I know, I know that I know that this is the calling that God has for me is to help lead and steward um, Jesus' church. And also, if I would have taken that job, I would have gone deeper into the realm of finance, and I probably would have needed to stay there two or three years to not be hopping around too much, and who knows, maybe a promotion or something different would have come after that. And if I would have taken the job, and if I would have gone for the short-term this, I likely would have never jumped into the thing that God had waiting for me. Now, that's what God said to me. We all have to determine what is... God saying to you, but I'll say this, um, working at a job that I didn't enjoy was really hard, and now I know I'm created to do what I'm doing now, and this job is easily, by far, no doubt, the hardest job I've ever had. Working in the cubicle, piece of cake compared to this, and I love it, And and there are moments when this job is really difficult that I'm like, I don't know how I'm like making it through. I don't know how I'm not giving up, and I think something was cultivated deep in a little 22-year-old that said, I'm going to choose the hard thing because I believe God's speaking. And so maybe work is hard, and you need to pray. God, am I released from this? And it is very likely that God could say yes. But if God says no, I want to encourage you that work can be hard, and I want to encourage you to stick through it because who knows, God might actually be developing something in you. Okay, next week, because today, we're finishing up Wholehearted Health. And next week, we're starting a new series. And, uh, and I want to say this, because I'm pretty excited, a little bit nervous about it. We're talking about worldview. And, uh, and we're going to be talking, and this is not in the order, because I'm not going to tell you the order. We're going to be talking about race, the value of life, sex and sexuality, reconciliation and poverty. <laughs> and, uh, and here's what I want to say. One, I'm going to ask that you commit to listening to every week. I'd love for you to be here every week. If you're not here, I want you to listen because what you're going to find, here's what's so interesting. This is based on an article. We chose these five based on an article written about the early church and how it was so attractive to the Roman paganism around it. And what's so interesting about the, the topics we chose is uh, that if you look at the stance of a couple of them, it's like, man, that's oddly conservative, almost right-leaning. And then you look at a couple more and it's like, that's oddly progressive, almost left-leaning. And here's the assertion. I wonder if Jesus, and stick with me here, I wonder if Jesus is possibly above the two-party system, and that the worldview of Jesus, I know, I know, crazy. I wonder if it's possible the worldview of Jesus might actually be above, and I wonder if each party has gathered glimpses of what the kingdom is supposed to look like and taken them, and we've gone to our corners, and I wonder if Jesus might say something differently about those things and so here's my ask of you if you listen to a couple of them you might say man this church is going that way man this church is going that way if you listen to all five i promise you you're going to be right i hope where jesus is in the middle because as i've looked at my worldview compared to a biblical worldview i've been really convicted not everything that i see actually is through the lens of scripture and through jesus and we're going to take quite the journey of having some tough conversations and here's how we're going to have them we're going to have them with grace, truth, and nuance. We're going to have these conversations with grace, truth, and nuance. And I would love for you to commit to listening to each one of those. Now, I'm going to turn a corner. I'm going from this awkward, kind of nervous talk about worldview, and we're about to party. We're about to party. This is my favorite Sunday um, because we are about to baptize some people. And. Um, We're about to baptize some people, and I just got the thumbs up that, like, God actually did stop the rain enough for us to get outside. So, first of all, God's real. God is awesome. And, Lord, we're asking your protection over our uh, sound equipment. Now, here's what baptism is. Um, The Lord gives two ordinances to his church. One is the Lord's table, and that's what we do to take to remember and identify with Jesus over and over again. The other one is baptism, which is an entry point. Into faith in Jesus. And what baptism is, is going public with your faith. Baptism is going public with your faith. And what it does is it says, I want to identify with that man for the rest of my life and I want to be a part of his family, the church, forever. Not this church. You're not getting baptized into this church, you're being baptized into the church. And so baptism is a big deal because we're identifying with Jesus and we're identifying with. His church. And guys, you're about to hear some crazy stories. What's about to happen is both symbolic and supernatural all at the same time. There is no holy water that we filled this tub up with, but there is something supernatural that is about to happen when these people go down into the water and come back up. Two weeks ago, there was a girl in my living room that met Jesus for the very first time. And she's going to be baptized into the church of Jesus, and she's going to be baptized into following him for a lifetime. Guys, God's awesome. God's awesome. So here's what's about to happen. Uh, we're going to go downstairs. Service is not over. So this isn't like, a, oh, got out early. Brunch is going to be great. Service is not over, but you are about to leave this room. If you have kids, get them. Don't play a joke on us. You actually do have to pick the kids up. And I want you to go straight downstairs into the family room. We're going to be baptizing out in the courtyard. So if, and I believe it's not raining anymore. If you have an umbrella, you can get one. But we're going to line up all around the street. And we're going to do a little bit of worship. And then we're going to see people be dunked into identifying with Jesus and come back up. And if you've never been baptized, but you follow Jesus, I want to talk to you. Anybody that you've seen on stage wants to talk to you. And if you've never, this is the last thing I'll say. If you've never committed your life to Jesus. If you've never fully and wholeheartedly identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. The greatest decision is still ahead of you. The greatest decision you could ever make is still ahead of you. And I promise, more than anything else that anyone in this room is doing today, find uh, me, find one of our band members, find a house group leader, find the friend that brought you. We want to talk about that because that is the greatest decision that you will ever make. Service is not over, but we're going to leave. Get your kids, and we're going to go party downstairs as we watch people get baptized.